thankful for this chance for us to be together as but also to be uh, in God's word, rooted in this gospel message that we sang about, and now we'll be rooted about it in what we read and reflect and meditate on. I'd like to ask you to take out your phones, your Bibles, whatever you have. I don't put my scripture on the, board, on the PowerPoint because I want you to get used to opening your Bibles. Unfortunately, many people don't open their Bibles at all anymore. We, we, so I want us to get in a habit, even if it's on your phone, of opening it. So uh, Galatians chapter 3. I'll give you a moment to find it. Galatians chapter 3. We're going to be talking about verses 6 through 9 this morning, but we will read starting in verse 1. Galatians chapter 3. I'll start reading in verse 1 through 9. <clears throat> o foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Let us pray. Father, we ask now that you will be our teacher, that you will open our eyes to see the truth of this word, and that you would open our hearts to receive it. We commit this time in your hands. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Uh, I tend to find that people in the world around us are uh, one of two kinds, dog lovers or cat lovers, okay? Um, we know that cat lovers uh, love those nice, cute, cuddly little cats. Who here is a cat lover? Please raise your hand. Okay, I see both of you. <laughs> okay. Um, Cats are annoying. Let's just, let's just be honest, okay? I, I really apologize to all you. You know, you're supposed to embrace your audience, but let's just be honest. You know, they look good on a picture, but I'll tell you, I woke up one morning. Well, it was 2 a.m. actually, and I was lying in bed, and this, somebody was abusing their child. This child was screaming, ah, ah, ah. And I go out, I open the door, I fling open the door of my house, I go out the street, and it's completely silent. And I go back and I lie down again. And again, this person starts torturing their baby. Ah, ah. And I go out again and it's completely silent. I lay down a third time, screaming like this, and I realize it's a stupid cat in my ceiling. And so I take the broom, you know, and I'm hitting the ceiling and everything's falling down. And this is 2 a.m. so you can see what kind of experience this is for me. That's my experience with cats. One reason that I think we struggle with cats is because they're so productive, right? 
Cats, when they multiply, they do so with a passion. Two cats in one year will produce 12 offspring, will become 12. After five years, two cats will become nearly 12,000. And in nine years, two cats will become 12 million. Okay? Cats reproduce. Cats multiply. Cats fill the earth. It's interesting because that's exactly the mission that God has given us, isn't it? Be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So the question I have for us today is why aren't we being more fruitful as Christians? Why isn't the church having an even greater impact in the world around us? If God has called us, joined himself to us, and put us on mission, why isn't it that the world isn't taking notice and the world coming to embrace this gospel message? Because if cats can do it, trust me, you can do it. If cats can do it who don't have the Holy Spirit, you and I who have been given the Spirit of God can certainly do this and much more for God's glory. And this is exactly what Paul is telling us in Galatians chapter 3. In this passage, he starts out with one man, Abraham. And then he talks about all those who have faith. So he talks about one community, one body, Israel or the church. But then he goes on to talk about all the peoples of the world. From one man who believed becoming a group of believers, coming into a worldwide movement of the gospel, of people learning about God and embracing him. And that's a roadmap for you and I today as we live out our Christian life in this world. How do you and I engage the world around us with this gospel message? And it's very simply, it starts by understanding this gospel message that we have to bring to the world. We see in our passage here that it says in verse 6 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Paul goes on later to say that this gospel in verse 8, which scriptures preached this gospel beforehand to Abraham. You see, the gospel is something that God himself declared to Abraham. There was no evangelist that came to him. There was no gospel tract that he picked up. He spoke with God And God spoke to him. And God communicated to him this very gospel message, and Abraham believed it. So why is it so important for us to understand Abraham's position in this? Because Abraham lived in an age that's not dissimilar to the place we find ourselves living today. Abraham lived in an age where people were always striving to save themselves. And we see that humanity is always trying to work out their own salvation through their own efforts, filled with pride, where we can turn back to ourselves and say, oh, I am so good. I have done such a great job that God will be happy with me and will let me into heaven. This is precisely the problem in the book of Genesis. 
after Adam and Eve sinned and were expelled from the garden, we see very quickly that two lines were created. The line of Seth, who called on the name of the Lord, and the line of Cain, the line which was constantly trying to achieve things on their own, through human achievement, reach the status that they had lost in the Garden of Eden. And this culminates with the building of the Tower of Babel, this monument where they build a city, and in the middle of the city, this huge building going up towards the heavens in hope to show that we are somebody. And when you're out walking around and you see it from afar, you go, look at how amazing people are. There is no way that we won't get back into heaven because look at all we can do. Let's face it, it's not any dissimilar from what we're seeing in the world around us today in the 21st century, is it? We just completed uh, the fasting month here in Indonesia where all the Muslims in the country do what? They fast throughout the month from sunup to sundown as a way of earning forgiveness of sins for every wrong that they've done throughout the past year. We find Buddhists trying to earn their way to nirvana by doing what? By giving good things, generosity to other people, and through their good works, trying to find their way to perfection. We find secular people doing this very same thing even today. Even if they don't believe that there is a God or a heaven, they're still believing that there is something greater beyond them and as part of this worldwide spirituality, we connect with it through being good people. I was in Portugal five days ago and um, I was talking to this guy and I said to him, so you've got all these books on your shelf here about philosophy. So which philosopher do you follow? And he says, oh, I think it's uh, Nietzsche. Everything's absurd. There is no law, no morals, nothing to follow. It's all just absurd. I said, so you mean there's no universal laws? It's not like what Plato said, how there's these absolutes, heavenly absolutes that you try to reflect in humanity. He goes, no, not at all. Plato was wrong. It's all absurd. So I said, so it's all relative. You can change your mind whenever you want. He goes, I guess. There's only one thing that's true. Well, this is interesting. There's only one thing that's true. And I perked up. I go, so what's that one thing? He goes, you should do good to others. See, if you do good to others, eventually when you die, no matter what's out there, you'll be okay because you fulfilled your calling as humanity. And his whole striving, his whole effort in life is simply to do one thing and one thing only, and it's to be good, to achieve goodness, to, to become valuable member of society so that eventually God will look on you and say, well, I guess, yeah, I guess I'll let you in. After all, it wasn't that bad, the things you did, compared to that guy, compared to her. See, that's the reality. If we live in a life in a world of people that are under self-deception, where we think goodness will get you to heaven. 
And quite honestly, if we took a poll here in this church, even a good Bible teaching evangelical church, if I took a poll of all of you sitting here today, and I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, okay, like I did for cat lovers, if I ask you to raise your hand, who thinks being good will get you into heaven, I think we'd honestly be surprised how many people here believe that. Even today, we think goodness is what makes you acceptable to God. But we read in the passage here that Abraham believed, and it was credited to him as righteousness. You see, as opposed to our proud, human-centered efforts, which are rejected by God, you see the antithesis of this is where we humble ourselves we deny ourselves, and we cast ourselves on God's solution. And that's the only way God will ever receive us. So what did Abraham believe that was so significant that God credited to him as righteous? You see, Abraham, he's an amazing guy. In the midst of this society of all trying to save yourself through works, here is one man in the sea of human self-effort, one man who says, God, I will follow you. And God called him out of the city of Ur on a journey where Abraham didn't know where he was going. And God changes his name to Abraham, the father of many nations. The only problem is Abraham doesn't have any kids. And as Abraham is blessed by God, and he's receiving more and more things. His herds are growing. His wealth is growing. He finally says to God, look, who's going to inherit all this? I'm becoming an old man. Who's going to get all this stuff that I've accumulated? How about my servant, Eleazar? Let him inherit it all. And God says, Abraham, that's not the way it's going to work. I am going to do something I am going to fulfill the promise that I've made to you that you will be a blessing to many nations, that you will be a father to many nations. Abraham, come out of your tent. He takes him out of his tent. He says, look up in the sky. And Abraham experiences something that Christians living in Jakarta will never experience in their life. He looked at the sky and saw a star. Okay? We look in the sky and we see smog. We look in the sky, we see clouds. We never look in the sky and see a star, do we? He didn't see a star. It was filled from end to end, star after star. And then God says, Abraham, count them. There's too many. Count them. I got all time. I'm, I'm eternal. I, we got time. One, two, three, 5,068. Boy, there's, there's more stars than cats up here. And God says exactly. Your descendants are going to be more than all of these. More than all of these. And Abraham believed. And it was credited to him as righteousness. What did Abraham believe? Abraham believed this audacious promise that God gave him. Abraham believed that God could do something that's totally impossible. 
And so Abraham gave a response just as audacious to God as the promise that God had made with him. We can read this in Romans chapter 4. It says that, And he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, because Sarah was 90 years old. Okay, so you have a man who's essentially dead, and a woman who's essentially a raisin, all shriveled up. That's what the Bible says, okay? And it says, no unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. And that is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Here's the thing. God gives this audacious promise to Abraham. You're dead. Your wife is shriveled up. It's hopeless. There is no possibility for you ever having a descendant. And God says, I'm going to give you a bunch. And Abraham met him fully convinced with boldness and confidence. His faith even grew, not shrunk. That's the kind of faith that receives the thing God wants to give. So what does this have to do with salvation? The gospel being declared to Abraham is this. You, there is no way you're ever getting to heaven. And God says, I promise I'm going to take care of it for you. I promise you I will give you heaven. You go, well, you don't know how many sins I have. How is it possible someone like me could ever be accepted by God in heaven? Because if God knew all the sins I did, he'd never want to be with me. He would never accept me. And God says, it's my promise. All you have to do is boldly believe it. All you have to do is throw yourself completely on my promise, and I'll do it for you. And it was credited to him as righteousness. This is actually an accounting word, the word credited. Okay, first he's counting the stars, and now he's getting a credit. We in counting know that there's credit and debit, that there's money coming in and money going out. And what God did is he took his accounting ledger for Abraham's life, just as he does for your life and mine. And he opens it up, and he says, credit. Oh, you did some good things. You served in the church. Oh, you, were, you helped that lady cross the street. Okay, you've done some good things. But boy, look at this debit column. Sin, 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 sin. Oh, wait, let me turn the page over. Sin, sin, sin. Oh, wait, the book's full. Let me get the second book out I have for you. Sin, 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 sin. Boy, do we have a problem, don't we? My ledger is full of things that I've done that God looks at as shameful, disgusting, and he says, all of the curses of the law I'm going to pour out on you. Then he takes the second person's ledger, and he opens it up, and it's all beauty, holiness, loveliness, goodness. It's all credit. And there's not a single thing written in the debit column. 
And he looks at it, and he looks at the name on the top of this ledger, and he says, Jesus Christ. And God says to Jesus, you are beautiful. And he says to us in our sin, he goes, I can't stand you. I curse you. And then God does something amazing. He says, if you believe in my work instead of your own work, I'm going to do something. And he crosses out your name, and he writes Jesus there. And he crosses out Jesus' name, and he writes your name there. And now, whenever God looks at Jesus, he says, you are disgusting. I despise you. I curse you. And he crucified Jesus. Then he turns to you, and he says, oh, you are beautiful. You're so lovely. I desire so much to be with you because you are so pleasing and dear to my heart. Come into my presence. This was the gospel declared to Abraham. And this is the gospel that he believed so it was counted as righteous to him. Not only is the gospel declared to Abraham, but we also see now this gospel is displayed by the church. That God has called us together as a body, a group of people, to not only just understand the gospel, but now to show it to the world around us. And it starts by first becoming a child of Abraham. As I mentioned earlier, it's very possible that some of us are going through life thinking, I'm pretty good, God's pretty happy with me, when in reality, that's not the case at all. And in order for us to find ourselves in this relationship with God, we first need to be a descendant of Abraham. Now, the Jews, they were going through life thinking they had it made. They were God's chosen people. And as God's chosen people, God was happy with them, God blessed them, and God despised these idol-worshiping pagans all around them. However, the Jews began to fall away from God's plan. And as a result of this, the Jews began to not look at God spiritually, but only looked at the law of God and how they could fulfill the law, be good people, because they were physical descendants of Abraham. In fact, the children of Israel were the physical descendants of Abraham. They could trace their genealogy back generation after generation, all the way back to Abraham. And they could do a DNA test, and it always showed that Abraham was their father. However, when Jesus appeared, they quickly showed that spiritually they weren't children of Abraham. In John chapter 8, we read about what happened. Jesus is ministering. He is showing the gospel. He is trying to lead Israel into the true path, into a relationship with himself and salvation through the cross of Christ. And what's happening is the Jewish people, particularly the Jewish religious leaders, are rejecting him. And Jesus says that you're not a son of Abraham. And at this point, they freak out because this is their badge of honor. Of all the people in the world, God only blesses the children of Abraham, and we have the blood of Abraham flowing through us. How dare you say we are not descendants of Abraham? And then Jesus says something remarkable in John chapter 8. He says, if you were sons of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did. 
If you were sons of Abraham, you would do the very work that Abraham did. You see, here's the Jews trying to work their way to heaven. Obey the law. Give your tithe. Fast on the appropriate days. Go to the temple and pray on the right day. Do the right things and God will be pleased with you. Jesus says, no. To be the sons of Abraham, you have to do the work that Abraham did. Well, what work did Abraham did? There wasn't a temple to go to, so Abraham didn't make themselves acceptable to God, or the Jews didn't make themselves acceptable to God by going to the temple. There wasn't a sacrificial law that was given yet, because that comes at Sinai with Moses, so there wasn't a, a way for Abraham to earn his salvation by giving the right sacrifices. Abraham hadn't even been circumcised yet, so he hadn't even earned his own salvation through doing religious works. So what was the work that Abraham did that Jesus says you must do? He believed. He believed and it was credited as righteousness. What Abraham did was he believed that he's a sinner, but God would send the Messiah to take away the sins of the world. And he believed it. He was sure of it. And he cast himself boldly and confidently on that promise and staked his life on it. And now here's Jesus appearing amongst all the Jews there, doing miracles, showing the true gospel message to the people around him so that blind eyes would be opened and they could see the truth. And what do the Jews do? They reject him. Why? Because we don't want, we're, we don't want grace. We want salvation by our own goodness, by our own work, by our own obedience to the law. And Jesus says, not even Abraham did that. If you want to be sons of Abraham, you do that based on Christ's work and believing what Christ did on your behalf. So the first way you and I display this gospel message to the world around us is by believing this. By accepting it. By throwing ourselves upon it. And that's why the church is called together to be a body because when we come together, we say everybody here, no matter how bad their sins are, no matter how much they serve in the church, no matter how rich they are or poor they are, educated or uneducated, short or tall, handsome or ugly, cat lover or dog lover, no matter who you are here, God has saved us all exactly the same way so that we all can say, I am a son and daughter of Abraham. Why? Because I threw myself on Jesus. And this church, this body, is a display of the gospel message. It's a display to the world around us so they can see, oh, this is what Christians believe. I thought you had to wear the right clothes to church or stand at the right time or sing at the right time or spin around in the right direction, but apparently none of that helps. What helps is simply throwing yourself on Jesus, and I can see that now. Why? Because I see it here. I see that all of you have become sons and daughters of Abraham. Secondly, we do it by then belonging to a new family. It's not enough just for us to display the gospel by believing it. We now display the gospel by being together as a family. By serving and loving one another. Because Jesus says as you love one another, the world will see that God the Father has sent him 
into the world. And you can only do that through a family relationship. You can't do that watching a streaming church service. You can't do that by having your own mountaintop experience every week. You only do that by investing yourself in the lives of others. And I think the family is one of the most beautiful pictures of the church community. Church family. Now imagine being Christians in the first century. Initially, all the Christians were Jewish background. They were in Jerusalem, they heard the gospel message, or they were from out of town, and they came for Pentecost, and they went back. But predominantly, the first believers were all Jewish. And then Paul comes along and messes it all up. He goes and takes the gospel to these Gentiles. And now these Gentiles are coming to faith, and it's messing the church up, because the church is no longer all speaking Hebrew, and all dressing the same, and eating the same food, and doing the same things. And now the church is confused. And the church in the, in the region of Galatia was also very confused. Because many of them came from a Greek background. And as a non-Jew, they were going to the pagan temple to worship. They would go and bring their food sacrifice. They would stand before the altar, before an idol, statue of an idol. And they would give their offerings there. And as they did this... They were asking that this God would come and bless them. Now, they worship Jesus only. And they know, oh, that pagan temple, I can't go there, can I? That's not my place. That's a false God. And the practices they do there, those aren't honoring God at all. So what can I do? If I can't go to the pagan temple anymore, well, where should I go to worship? Well, we've been reading the scriptures. The scriptures are all from the Jewish people. Why don't I go down the street to that synagogue? Okay. So he goes to the synagogue, and he opens the door, and he's going into the synagogue, and they say, wait a second. Uh, open your toga, please. Oh, my toga. Well, I'm going to worship. Why am I taking my pants off? And they go, no, sorry. Lift up your, lift up your sarong. We need to see if you're circumcised or not, because if you're not circumcised, you can't come in here. What? I'm sorry. It's the law. It's the law. Every descendant of Abraham is circumcised. And we know you follow Jesus. We follow Jesus too, but we still adhere to the law. So in order to come and worship in this place, you have to join us in following the law. So what he's saying to these new believers is if you want to be a Christian, now you have to become Jewish. Become like us. So then you can be part of our family. Well, Paul's having nothing to do with this. And he says to him that those of faith, not those who are following the law, not those who are being circumcised, not those that are speaking Hebrew and acting like a Jew are the ones who are saved, but he says those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the way you and I now display this gospel of the world is by becoming this family. Not just doing what Abraham did by believing, but becoming a family in which people will see us worshiping together. Focused not on the law, but focused on Christ. And so the church met in homes because families have homes. 
And we have family dynamics of loving and caring for each other and accepting one another as they struggle through weaknesses because all of this shows us that I'm a sinner like you, but I throw myself back on Jesus. I throw myself on Jesus. And thirdly, we see that not only do we become a new family, but as part of the family, we are now granted an inheritance. Paul, in verse 8, tells us what this inheritance is. He says, God would justify the Gentiles. The first inheritance that you have is justification by faith. Abraham believed, believed what? The gospel. Justification by faith alone in Christ alone. And as he believed that, he's passed that down so that you and I now, who belong to the family of Abraham, have embraced this gospel message. That's the first blessing that God's given us. But that's not the only blessing. The other blessing that God's given us in this passage was the Spirit. We read that in verses 2 through 5. That God has now given us the Spirit. A double blessing. Justification and the Holy Spirit. You can't have the Holy Spirit if you're not justified. He's a Holy Spirit. He doesn't come into unholy, unclean vessels. The minute you're justified, you're given the Holy Spirit. There is no such thing as a born-again Christian who doesn't have the Holy Spirit. And there's no, there's no such thing as a Spirit-filled Christian who isn't justified. And this double blessing is given to you so that as you live your life in this world... As we live as the body of Christ displaying this gospel to the world, you and I need both of these things. We need confidence in the gospel message. But at the same time, we need the Spirit speaking into us so that we live in the power of the gospel. And so when you sin, Saturday night, you get online, you start your your computer up and you open up pornography websites and you find yourself falling into sexual sin. Or on Sunday morning before church, you're getting your phone out and you're passing along juicy gossip to people. And you're talking bad about others and passing around all these rumors about them. And you find yourself once again always falling in these <coughs> same sins over and over and over. And Satan is sitting there whispering in your ear, you're going to church today? God is not going to listen to your prayer. God doesn't love you. You have sinned one too many times. He's done with you. He's done with you. But the double blessing of being a son of Abraham or a daughter of Abraham is that justification is given to us along with the Holy Spirit. So the Spirit speaks truth to you. At the same time, Satan is speaking these lies to you. And when Satan is speaking these lies to you, the Holy Spirit takes out the ledgers again and says, all right, let's review. You sinned last night. Okay, I'm going to write it down. What else did you do? Oh, you gossiped. Oh, you, you, you stole money. Oh, you, you lied to your parents. Oh, and you, you cheated this person, and you did this. Okay, I'm just going to keep adding on. And I don't, whoa, this is getting longer. Oh, wait, let me look again. Oh, this is Jesus at the top. This wasn't your book. Let's look back at your book. And the Holy Spirit opens up your book. Beauty, loveliness, 
And God says, look how pleased I am with you. I see you as holy. See, that's the ministry of God's Holy Spirit to us. He comes to us, fallen creatures, struggling, and we're struggling, aren't we? To live for God, to honor him. God is speaking his truth into us day by day, moment by moment, saying, listen to me. You who have cast yourself on Christ are justified by faith. Go and display it. Live it out through the power of the Holy Spirit. And finally, not only do we see the gospel uh, declared to Abraham and the gospel displayed by the church, but we see now that the gospel is deployed to the nations. You see, God has always had a plan. And his plan was started as he communicated it to Abraham. He said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the world shall be blessed. Here Abraham is given a a twofold blessing. I will bless you so that all the nations of the earth, all the peoples of the earth, will be blessed. Now I want you to notice in our passage, because this is really significant, in verse 8 is the first time in Scripture you see this happen. That this blessing that Abraham would be to the nations is described for us by Paul. And this is the first time that you see this. And Paul's the first one to tell us to us that the blessing is that God would justify the Gentiles. Because he proclaimed the gospel to Abraham beforehand that all the nations will be blessed. You see, what Paul is saying is the very blessing that God gave Abraham was salvation. And the blessing that Abraham was going to give to the world was the gospel message. From one man who believed, a community was born. Our problem is we stop there. I like being a part of the community. I like the family of God. I like the fact that I'm justified and filled with the Holy Spirit. This is good. Full stop. But God had a plan, and God's plan was never full stop. God's plan was this community was established for something, for a purpose. And that purpose was to take the gospel to all peoples, all nations, so that they too would be blessed. The biggest problem we have in the church is we become so self-centered on our gospel needs that we don't fulfill the mission that God has called us to, to live it out on a Monday morning in our high schools and colleges and in our offices and our homes. Instead, we think, ah, it's for me, it's for me. God, pick me up again. Bless me again. Help me. God made a people Abraham, or out of Abraham called Israel. And through them, they were to take the gospel to the whole world. God called us the church, and through us, we are to take this gospel to the whole world. This is God's plan. So how did God do that? He picked this one nation, and he gave them the prime real estate of the ancient world. The area of Israel was at the crossroads of everything. When you went from east to west and north to south, everyone passed through Israel. 
They couldn't go around Israel because it was desert. They couldn't go on the other side because it was water. They had to go through Israel. And then God says, okay, take this mountain, and on top of the mountain, I want you to build my temple. And in this temple, every day, you will sacrifice lambs. You will pour out their blood, because without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. It's the gospel message. And then God says, look, I'm going to even help you draw the nations to come here. I'm going to line the top of this temple with gold so it will glimmer in the sunlight. And so as the caravans would come from Egypt going to Rome, and they'd see off far away, wow, look at that shining stuff there. Let's go over and investigate and see what it is. And they'd go over and they'd say, boy, this must be a great shopping mall. No, 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 it's not a mall. Well, you must have a great show going on tonight. No, no show here. Well, what's this beautiful place for? It's awesome. He goes, here, come. We're sacrificing sheep. Why? Because we're sinners. And only through the shedding of blood is there forgiveness of sins. And people crossing by there day after day were seeing the gospel message. This was God's track to the world. Not only did he proclaim the gospel before and to Abraham, he's now made Israel a worldwide gospel presentation. But what was Israel's response? Israel's response was complete and utter failure. God had given them an obligation. God had given them the opportunity. And what do we do? We see in 2 Kings chapter 17 that Israel walked in the way of all the nations before them. Instead of worshiping God at the temple, instead of being faithful to God, we find Israel following the ways of the practices of the nations around them, worshiping idols, worshiping false gods, going back to works, going back to the way the world says is you can manipulate God because you're good. God will finally give in and let you into heaven. And nation of Israel completely failed. Actually, when you get to the end of the Old Testament, you get to the book of Jonah. And the book of Jonah is a summary of the entire Old Testament. Jonah, this Jew, is told to go to a Gentile place, to Nineveh, and tell them that God is going to bring judgment on them. And Jonah goes the opposite direction. Why? Because he hates them. He doesn't want the nations to be saved. He wants the nations to be cursed and to be punished. And that's the heart of the Jewish people. They become like idolaters around them, and they hate the gospel, and they hate the nations around them. They have completely failed in their mission. But God is gracious. God didn't end the story there, but God gave us throughout the Old Testament sprinklings of how he was going to bring the nations to Christ. You know the story of Naaman? has leprosy. Nobody's healed of leprosy. And then Naaman, this Syrian, comes to Israel in 2 Kings chapter 5, and Naaman is told to go wash in a river. He washes in the river, and God completely heals him. And he goes back to the prophet Elisha, and he says, Wow, I'm healed. None of my idols could do this. And then he says the most remarkable statement. He knows that the only God in the entire world is Yahweh, the Jewish God. Imagine this. Israel won't go to the Gentiles, so what does God do? Brings the Gentiles there. 
And he shows them who the true God is. See, God's still gracious. God's plan all along was to use broken people, people struggling with their sins, to go out in this world and to proclaim and illustrate this gospel lesson. So the question for us today is now that Christ has come, Christ has given himself for us, he's completed the gospel, he's fulfilled God's plan of salvation, gospel is no longer come to Jerusalem and see the gospel. Jesus says, go to the world. We're deployed. We're sent out. Go on Monday morning. If you've sinned and wronged people, tell them that. Humble yourself because your salvation doesn't depend on you being perfect. Display the gospel to them in the way we relate to one another. Let us fill this city with the gospel message. Because if we don't do it, God is going to push us aside just like he pushed Israel aside. And he says, I've got other ways to do it. Go to your offices. Go to your families. Go to your friends. Shine the gospel so that they might see Christ and Christ crucified. Just a moment, we're going to go to the Lord's table, have our communion. And just as Paul had said in Galatians 3, verse 1, it was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So too we take one bread and we eat from it. Because we all eat from the same Christ. We take one cup because we all drink from the same blood of Christ. Just as Christ died so we might live, so too we proclaim this message to the world. The only gospel we have, the only gospel Abraham had, the only gospel proclaimed by Israel, and the only hope for the nations is Jesus Christ and him crucified. Let us pray. Father, we thank you at this time that you have called us into this gospel mission to multiply and be fruitful and to fill this earth. So we ask, Lord, at this time that you might remind us as we come to the Lord's table that you have blessed us with this community for a purpose, and the purpose is to glorify your name. And so, Father, we ask now that we might meet you in a new and fresh way and that we might understand more deeply the great love you have for us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.